Hi, good morning. I'm Wes, one of the pastors here, excited to be with you in this way, uh, to spend some time in God's Word, learn together. So uh, if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, whatever it is, if you could turn to our passage today, we're going to be in Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. I'm going to do what we do each Sunday, look at a passage, talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible there, could you, once you've found that, could you stand together with me and honor the reading of God's Word? Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. Here we read this. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven. Just ignore the impulse to hear a song there. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it, or some of your translations, you'll see a footnote. I think the better translation is, there beside him stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, which means the house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly. Just commit this time to God and we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I ask you to come now illumine the preaching of your word. Come powerfully by your spirit and open eyes and hearts and minds to receive what it is you want to Speak to us how you want to minister to us. You know each person in this room intimately, and I'm praying that you would minister to us exactly as we need that ministry this morning, whatever it is. Accomplish the good purpose for which you've sent out this word. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Um. Actually, Jimmy, do you mind just putting up that first slide of this dude? Anybody know who that is? Anyone who doesn't have a sermon manuscript with you, that is, know who this is? Recognize him? No? It was the early morning hours of July 9th, 1982. This guy, an unemployed house painter by the name of Michael Fagan, scaled the gates at Buckingham Palace climbed a drain pipe and went in through a back window and found his way into the sleeping chambers of Queen Elizabeth II. 
Um, those of you who are fans of the Netflix series The Crown, you might have seen that episode called Fagin, actually, where uh, they kind of reenact what happened with this epic break and entry. Um, crazy, crazy that this could just happen. And yet, as unfathomable as a stunt like this kind of taking place, according to Fagin, this actually wasn't even the first time he'd done this. A month earlier, he'd broken in, just kind of wandered the halls unnoticed, stole a bottle of wine even, and then left. Nobody even knew he was there. Um, the motives behind his break-in are, are less clear in real life in the TV kind of reenactment of it. Uh, Fagan's unscheduled visit here to the Queen was because he wanted her to be able to hear the opinions of like everyday normal people like him about then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Again, in the Netflix series, uh, the Queen says to him, on the contrary, young man, I meet normal people all the time. To which Fagan replies, no, you don't. He says, you meet people who are on their best behavior. But as shocking as Fagan's actions were, the reality is he wasn't wrong, right? He wasn't wrong in his assessment that this was the only way that someone like him was going to be able to meet someone like the queen in order to bring her these everyday normal opinions, right? It wasn't as though he could go to the front desk at Buckingham Palace and just make an appointment. This was likely the only way, because for someone like Fagan, climbing in illegally through an open window, that was the only way access to royalty was possible. And I bring it up as we continue in our teaching series here today entitled Origin Story, because access, or access to royalty... It's actually exactly what we're going to be talking about in our passage today, specifically access to the King of Kings, which we lost, we lost that access all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, we were expelled from His presence. The only difference here is that sadly, there's no, uh, there's no drain pipe, there's no um, beanstalk or anything we can climb up in order to get into a back window of of heaven, access in this case is truly cut off. It's, it's closed and blocked. And as we've seen here by this point, uh, we've been in Genesis the last few weeks, we've seen all interaction with God is now limited just between like a few small group, like a select group of faithful individuals. Those, you know, we could say on their best behavior, which is a bit of a problem. A bit of a problem for this man named Jacob, who we're introduced to here in our passage today, because although he comes from said faithful individuals, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, younger son of Abraham's son Isaac. Uh, let's just say that faithful, not really a word that anyone would use to describe Jacob at this point in his life. Um, and we'll get into why that is as we go here. But the incredible news of this passage, like why I want to look at this today is that it reveals, what, what it shows us two things. God reveals to Jacob, of all people, first of all, access to heaven is still very much open. Access is still open. And secondly, although Jacob has lost all hope of blessings that he was promised even before he was born, ever coming to fruition, God makes a point here at one of the lowest points of Jacob's life, come and meet with him in order to reveal that he is still absolutely in the business of keeping his promises. And it's, it's transforming for Jacob. It's a transforming encounter for him, and I pray it's going to be in a transforming encounter for us today as well as we dig into this next origin story together. 
And in order to help you really just see how incredible this interaction with Jacob is, as well as what this means for us, this, this dream vision that God gave to Jacob, this, this vision of a stairway reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it, what does that reveal to us? I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. We're going to talk about the unconditional nature of access and then the transformational power of access. Just those two things. Unconditional nature, transformational power of access. So, let's do this. If you close your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, could you open them again with me to that passage, Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. Follow along with me as we dig into this next origin story today and talk about the origin of access. Okay, so let's look first of all at this unconditional nature of access unconditional nature of it. And I know because of where we began in the story, it's going to be kind of a little bit hard to get a true sense of just how unconditional this access Jacob is granted here is without knowing at least a little bit more of the backstory. Maybe we could say the origin story of the origin story. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to go into a ton of detail here, but I don't also just want to assume that everyone here, or even most people, know what it means when we come to verse 10 here. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and headed off for Haran. I don't just want to assume that we know why he's heading on this journey to Haran or, or everything that led up to this journey to begin with. So very quickly, Jacob, he is the younger brother of Esau, the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah. With Isaac, as we saw last week, he is the son of Abraham. And apparently these two brothers, man, they just did not get along. I don't know if you have brothers at all, but these two were just so different, very different personalities, body types, everything, and they just fought constantly all the time. Apparently, even before they were born, uh, these guys were fighting so much in the womb, apparently such turmoil. Genesis 25 tells us there was such a ruckus in Rebecca, their mom's body, that she actually goes to God. She's like, what's going on? What's happening here? This doesn't feel right. And God says this to her, listen, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be the stronger, and the other, uh, stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Which is actually a really important, significant detail there, because what that meant was that the blessings that God had given to Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you into a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. Uh, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Those promises God had given to Abraham which had then been passed on to Isaac, were now going to be passed on to the younger son, Jacob, instead of to Esau, the firstborn, which, I mean, we don't have time to get into, but just know that that was something that was never done in this culture. It just didn't happen. The firstborn son always had the birthright. But as the years go on, um, Isaac is getting old now. He's near to death. The guy is nearly blind. He's just hanging on by a thread here. And... As he's about to die, he, his wife, Rebecca, overhears him talking to Esau one day. And Esau was Isaac's favorite son. Um, and he says to him, I want you to go out, hunt some game. Uh, Esau was a great hunter. Go hunt some game. Make some of that food I really like. And come back here. I'm going to eat, and I'm going to give you the family blessing. I'm going to give it to you before I die. Um, Rebecca overhears this. And... and we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Like, did Rebecca never tell 
Isaac, that this whole thing from God about how the, the younger son is going to be the, the preeminent one, the older will serve the younger, or if maybe Isaac just didn't believe her, he's like, that's not how it works. We can't, we can't bless the, the younger son. We don't know. But either way, desperate to see her favorite son, okay, Rebecca, she kind of favors Jacob. She likes him a little more. Desperate to see this blessings that God has promised to Jacob happen, her and Jacob kind of conspire together. They develop a plan basically just to trick Isaac. They're going to impersonate Esau because, remember, Isaac's almost blind. They're going to impersonate him in such a way that he can come in, get the blessing that he was supposed to get, and get out of there. Just, just trick him. That's their plan. And just spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, the plan works. Uh, they, they trick Isaac. Esau is still out hunting. Jacob comes in and gets, gets the blessing. And then he's literally like, just out the door, like he's just heading out, when in comes Esau with his, you know, pot or whatever he'd made, all right, dad, I'm ready for, to, to only to find out what his brother has just done. You can imagine that was not a, a happy moment. And that's, that's just like a quick synopsis of a much longer story, but you need to know at least that much, because when we get to the beginning of our passage here, verse 10, and you see Jacob left Beersheba for Haran, what you now know is that Jacob's not like cashing in some vacation time, going to visit family and friends. He's running for his life. He's running for his life. As Esau has publicly sworn a vow to kill Jacob, the second, like the last, whatever, catering truck has left their dad's imminent funeral. I don't know if you have brothers. You grew up with brothers. I think we've all at some point told our brothers we're going to kill them. Esau means it. He's literally going to kill a second dad's out of here. When dad's gone, so are you. You're going to join him. It's a, it's, it's a literal threat here. And you get a sense of the truly like desperate, fugitive nature of Jacob's journey as well and some of the early details in our passage here. Everything from calling the location where he stops for the night a certain place. It doesn't give it a name. Really just meaning like he's, he's nowhere. He's in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of the wilderness here, uh, even just saying the fact that he uses a stone as a pillow, meaning like he had to get out of Dodge quick, right? He didn't have time to make a lot of provisions packing for this trip because, I mean, the only reason you're going to use a stone for a pillow is if you've literally got nothing else to use. So he's, he's a fugitive. He's, he's running. And yet, as difficult and dangerous as this journey may be, Jacob knows he has this coming. Like, he knows he deserves this fugitive life that he's now living, right? He's always been something of a smooth-talking trickster, uh, cunning, persuasive, deceptive. These are Jacob's kind of habits and, and skill set that he has. I mean, he's not big and strong and hairy like his brother, so he has different ways to um, bring about or exert power. And this is what he uses, deception, smooth-talking, this kind of thing. You can imagine, like, a young... Jack Sparrow, before he left home for a pirate's life, that's, that's Jacob. He, this is the kind of guy he is. In fact, maybe you already knew. Uh, Jacob's name in Hebrew literally means he grasps the heel, which, which doesn't, it's not just a description of when he was born. Apparently, he was hanging on to Esau's heel as they came out, still fighting as they come out. Uh, it means that he, he's a deceiver. He trips people up. He, he trips them through his deception and lying. But now, right, like he'd, he'd pushed it too far. He'd pushed his luck, taken the whole thing too far here by stealing Esau's blessing. 
And now this whole past way of living, it's, it's literally caught up to him, or at least it's trying to. So he's running for his life. And I don't know, maybe someone here this morning, you, you know exactly what it feels like to be Jacob here right now. Maybe you know exactly the feelings of fear and confusion and self-loathing that Jacob is experiencing right here. You've, you've, you've lived a certain way. You've made a certain set of choices, and, and life has blown up. Family's blown up, whatever. Uh, you're, you're ostracized now from people, uh, family, everything and everyone familiar to you, and, and you know it's your fault. You, you did it, and now you can't go back. Maybe, maybe there's people here who know exactly what that feels like. But I say all that because I think you really need to see, you need to feel where Jacob's at right now to get the full impact of just how unconditional God's interaction with Jacob here is this night when he's dreaming this dream truly is. How unconditional the interaction is. Because as, as I said earlier, access to God at this point right now is, is extremely limited commodity. Right? The Bible only lists a very small number of faithful men and women that he's continuing to interact with, which means, man, of all the people that God could seek out and interact with, Jacob's going to be like very near the bottom of the list. Right? This isn't the guy he's going to seek out. And then on top of that, think about this. Jacob, he's not seeking God either in this interaction, right? He's not out in the desert wandering around trying to find himself, just trying to be like, man, I need to fix this. God, help me be a, a better man and stop all this. He's not doing that. In fact, the one place you see Jacob even mention God before this, he refers to him, he's talking to his father, he refers to him as the Lord your God. Okay, so it's like he doesn't even see himself as knowing or really wanting to know the God of his ancestors. And yet, look at this. Look, look at our passage again here. This, it's to Jacob, this guy absolutely not following the rules, not on his best behavior, that God reveals himself. This is the guy he chooses. Jacob, the deceiver, is the one that God grants access to. Look, not only revealing himself there, verse 13, as the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac, but giving him now the same promises that he'd given to Abraham back in chapter 12, 15, and 22. Saying there to him, look at the second half of verse 13. I will give you and your descendants this land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and the south. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. These are the same promises God had given to Abraham. They're now giving to Jacob. But then look on top of that. Look at verse 15. God adds three additional promises on top of that to Jacob. I will be with you. The promise of presence. I, I will watch over you uh, uh, of protection, and I will bring you back to this land. Uh, uh, he's giving him promise, assuring him that although he's leaving this land of promise in fear and disgrace, he will without doubt return. Can you see how crazy that is, that God's doing this to this guy? And then we'll look at the incredible transformation that results from this access to God in just a minute here. Um, but what I want to pause and just make sure that we really just grasp and see before we do is the truly unconditional nature of this access that God gives to Jacob in our passage. That you begin to grasp and truly believe that our behavior, past, present, even future, has nothing to do with our access to God. 
but that it rests entirely upon his grace. That's what gives us access. There's actually two different types of people who need to see and grasp and truly believe that reality. On the one hand, there's those of us like Jacob who have no illusion whatsoever uh, based on maybe choices we've made in the past, maybe choices we're currently making right now, that we're certain exclude us from access to God. We know we don't have access. The hope of this passage for people like us is that the seemingly exiled, excluded place uh, that, that we're in right now, it, it, the hope of this passage is that God didn't grant access to Jacob based on his behavior past, present, or even just future. I mean, I know you're going to do good stuff. It wasn't based on that at all, at all. Solely based on his grace, his unmerited favor to Jacob. You see this same reality played out in the New Testament with Jesus, the way he says things like, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. <clears throat> Almost as if Knowing we don't deserve access is the very thing that draws the heart of God to us. The other type of person, though, that needs to hear this and grasp and truly believe this reality is who we'll just call the elder brothers of the world. Okay, those, those of who believe they've earned access to God by just you know, following the rules well enough, cleaning themselves up enough that they've earned their access to God. The challenge of this passage, if, if you're in that kind of seemingly accepted place, although you're actually still without access in that place, is same thing. God's interaction with Jacob was not based on his behavior. It wasn't based on how well he followed the rules, but on his grace alone. You see this same kind of reality showing up in the New Testament when Jesus says things to the Pharisees, teachers of the law, all the really good rule keepers of his day, and he says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you, almost as if believing that you have no need of the grace of God is the very thing that continues to restrict your access to him. So that's the unconditional nature of our access. It's not based on how well you perform. It's based on God's grace to you. Last thing I want to look at together with you is the transformational power of access. Let's take a look at this. And you, and you see this in verse, or first of all, in verse 16 and 17. Look here. Transformation upon waking up from this dream vision that Jacob is given is immediate. Like it happens right away. I don't know if you've ever had a, a dream like this or something that just felt really so real and vivid and crazy. And you just sit up in your bed and you're just like, okay, what? This, this is what's happening to Jacob here, right? He leaps out of this bed, this stony bed that he's made for himself, and he says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I wasn't aware of it. He's afraid, and he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. We'll come back to that in a second, but look now at verse 18. We read there, now early the next morning, notice there's no um, indication that Jacob went back to sleep and then woke up again, because, I mean, how do you fall back asleep after something like this happens? Doesn't, he just, early the next morning, gets up, takes the stone that he'd been using as a pillow, sets it up as a pillar, like a, a marker of some kind that says, hey, something profound, something life-changing, something that needs to be remembered happened here. 
And then he anoints the stone with oil, this, this way of consecrating or setting something apart for a special or a holy purpose. And he names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. Finally, now look at verse 20 through 22. Jacob makes a vow in response to God's promises to him. And as you see there in the second half of verse 21, for the first time, or at least the first recorded time anyway, he refers to God as the Lord my God. Total transformation that's happened here. And, and I know maybe you've heard sermons on this. Uh, a number of commentators I read, they kind of throw a bit of shade on Jacob's vow here. It's kind of like, well, you know, his theology isn't perfectly formed here. He's using a lot of, you know, if God, if, if you're faithful to the promises. The reality is um, most covenant language promises and vows have if-then clauses. That's kind of how they work. So that's why I liked Bruce Waltke's comment here regarding the impact of Jacob's vow when he says, the vow reorients Jacob's journey. Okay? It had originated as a flight to avoid assassination, find a suitable wife to his parents. Now, however, Jacob's journey has become a pilgrimage with theological content. He goes to the same place for much uh, and the same reason, and, but now he travels as a carrier of God's promises and with the divine assurance of aid. So, so whatever's going on, clearly something's different now about Jacob, right? This is not the same guy who went to sleep on this stony pillow a few hours ago. Very different person now. And, and I think the question such a transformation is intended to evoke from us is like, well, what happened? What, what, what changed? What, what made this transformation take place? Problem is, the answer on the surface anyway sounds entirely unsatisfactory. How, what was the big thing that made the change? Oh, he had a dream. That, that's it? What, like he had a dream? Like Martin Luther King? Or is that? What, what do you mean? He had a dream and, and now he's just different? And, and of course, reality is, I mean, for most of us, we don't look at dreams the same way today as, as Jacob is clearly understanding this. So, I mean, you look at this dream, there's some stairway to heaven with, with angels of God tra traveling up and down. He sees that and he just wakes up. The Lord's in this place. And we're just like, that's, that's it? You saw that crazy kind of image and that radically transformed you? Well, again, on the one hand, I think we want to be quick to acknowledge, first of all, especially in the Bible, but even today, a dream is not always just a dream. Sometimes you see this all through the Bible, and yes, you do see this still today. Dreams can be the way that God speaks to us, comes to interact with us, meet us, reveal things to us in all kinds of incredible ways. God absolutely speaks through dreams and visions like this. But on the other hand, maybe the answer is that what so transformed Jacob wasn't the dream itself, but what the dream revealed to him. Because look again. When Jacob wakes from the dream, you don't see him describing the dream itself, right? You don't see him saying, wow, what an amazing dream. That stairway went all the way up to heaven. Wow, and those angels, I saw some angels, and they were going up and down. What does he say? Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Which means what? It means Jacob wasn't transformed by God, and then he had access he was given access to God, and he was transformed by it. It's an important differentiation to make. And then look at this. He's described, this is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. What does that mean? Well, 
A number of scholars liken this image, this stairway to heaven of a ziggurat, this kind of uh, temple, high pyramid, pyramid-like temples built in important places where important people would climb the stairs with your offerings, your sacrifices, your prayers. You'd go up the stairs and you'd be received because, you know, you'd put in this effort. You're that much closer to heaven when you would offer these things. And in fact, what most scholars agreed as well is that in calling this place the gate of heaven, this is a direct reference to the Tower of Babel, which you read about back in Genesis 11. If you don't know that story, there the people of earth, they try to build one of these stairways up to heaven. They're trying to find their own way up, make a name for themselves. We build a stairway up to heaven. Um, so it's, it's likely referring back to that exact instance. And although, yes, today we use the word Babel to describe like talking gibberish or nonsense, and the reason for that is because Again, in that story, everybody at the time speaks the same language, and then God confuses or divides their language so nobody can understand each other. They have to abandon the project, and that's what happens. But also, in ancient Near Eastern times, Babel, or Babylon, meant the gate of heaven. We're going to build the gate of heaven ourselves. So why would God, why would God wreck that? Wouldn't he just like honor the fact they're trying to... to Come to me and reach me. Why would he make it so they couldn't complete this? Like, I mean, I don't know if those of you who had like kids when they were younger and you'd put them in those little pack and play things and you'd go away, use the bathroom or something, come back and they'd like set up teddy bears and they're about to like climb out and they're just, you just got to stop them. Is that what God's doing? He's just like, wow, wow, no, we, we got to cut this off. These guys are going to make it up here. Is he trying to do that? Or, or was it instead because what God knew even then is, that's not how you regain access to my presence. It won't be by you building a tower or climbing a drain pipe to where you try to get to me. It'll be a means of access that I provide and where I will come to you. That's how access is going to work. Which all of a sudden, right, like that makes so much more sense now of Jacob's dream. Because think about it. What does Jacob see? He sees a stairway reaching all the way up to heaven. Angels of God ascending and descending on it. That's signifying the work of God, the activity of God that's going on all the time right now. But he just, we, we don't see it with our naked eyes. It's revealed to him. But then, and this is where translation matters, even though it's just a footnote alternate in many of our translations, many Hebrew scholars agree, where the Lord is standing is not up at the top of the staircase, kind of looking down on Jacob. He's standing right beside him in a place of closeness and intimacy. And so that's then what leads Jacob to say, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. I think, I think for Jacob, the transforming power of that access had been granted was, was the fact that the Lord was in this place in particular. He's not in some super important holy place coming to super holy important people, but in the middle of nowhere to, to an apparent nobody by the world's standards. God was here in this place of pain and sadness and loss and failure for Jacob. He was here with him. Here, Jacob was granted, granted access to the presence of God. And then look, rather than words of judgment and condemnation, when he comes to him, instead, God speaks words of blessing, provision, 
protection. So different than what he expected. I, I didn't know God worked like this. And now he's seen God is here in these places that I wasn't aware he could be. And I know for many of you today here, myself included, this is, this is our testimony as well. The transforming experience of access to God that in those places of brokenness, shame, failure, loss, where we felt God was a thousand miles away, like he wouldn't want anything to do with us, that those are the places where he met us. Those are the places he found us, spoke words of blessing and comfort and identity that you never anticipated, and it transformed you forever too. Some of you might be familiar with the singer-songwriter with terminal cancer, Night Birdie. He, she rose to fame international as she went on America's Got Talent, sang the song, told her story. Everyone was like, wow, incredible, incredible story. She wrote a devastatingly powerful reflection just before her death about this very idea in a simple poem called God is on the bathroom floor. That is, like, no, not that he fell there or he was somehow embedded in the tiles on the bathroom floor, but that in this place of her struggle and grief and loss, where she would go to lie on the mat in the bathroom and just cry and mourn and weep over her pain, her abandonment as her husband had abandoned her, everyone had left her, and she said, that's where God met me, in that place. That just like Jacob, she discovered the Lord is in this place, too. She wrote this, even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I still go and lay on the bathroom mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is there even now. I've heard it said some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. He's in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. And yet one of the coolest, like truly powerful, beautiful things of all about this origin story is not only what it reveals to us through the life of Jacob, but what it also prepares our hearts and minds to better understand about the New Testament story of Jesus. Because in a sort of really obscure, often missed connection to this story in the life of Jesus, uh, it comes right near the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. John chapter 1, Jesus is calling some of his first disciples. He calls Philip to be one of his disciples. Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel, says, We found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, to which Nathaniel classically replies, Nazareth? Chilliwack? Uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? Sorry, that was, that's not in the Bible. Can anything good from, come from Nazareth? To which... Philip replies, come and see. Come and see. So then just listen to this interaction Jesus and Nathaniel have in this kind of meet and greet that they first have. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming. He says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel asks, what? How do you know me? To which Jesus replies, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And we don't know what was happening in Philip's life like, or Nathaniel's life, like what he was thinking about or why this so impacted him, but something about it was just like, you're, there's no way you could know that. And he says to him, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. 
To which Jesus replies, now listen closely, you believe because I, saw, I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see even greater things than this. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wow. Which means what? It means what this origin story is truly preparing our hearts and minds to understand is that Jesus is the stairway. Jesus is the point of access that makes heaven open to us once again. The Apostle Paul put it this way in his letter to his young protege, Timothy. He says, for there is one God and one mediator, one, one point of access between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Keller put it like this. Jesus doesn't say, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending to the Son of Man. He says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why? Jesus is the steps. Every other religion is a series of steps, he says, and it's a what. It's something to do. Follow these steps and you'll get there, right? The real gate of heaven, the real way to find access to God is not a what, it's a person. He fulfilled the requirements. He did the steps. He lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. He didn't come to show you this stairway. He came to be this stairway. And as Keller rightly concludes, only when you understand that, when you understand who the Son of Man is and what he came to do, then heaven will be open to you. That's the access right there. So I don't know. I don't know where you're at today on your own journey to seeking access to God. How do I access him? How do I get to him? Wherever you're starting from today, the wilderness, bathroom floor, wherever it is. I pray that you'd receive either encouragement or challenge in seeing Jesus as the access point to God. He is the stairway. He is the, the gate to heaven itself. I mean, what did Jesus say himself? John 10, 9, I am the gate. I am the gate. Whosoever enters through me will be saved. I'm the way to God. I'm the way to restored relationship. Which means, if that's right, if he truly is the gate, if he's the access point, and that brings real hope to us, right? Because it means access to God has nothing to do with you trying to earn your way in or even trying to sneak your way into God's presence through the back window like Fagan. No, the way of access to God is made open by Jesus earning on your behalf. The writer of Hebrews tells us, by his one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's made the way open by his work, which is one of the clearest, most enduring demonstrations of God's grace to us, revealing to us, yeah, God, God doesn't stand high above us, awaiting our worthy ascent. He's a God who descends and who brings access to us. Thanks be to God. Amen.